Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Thank you to the worship team for that uh, very appropriate selection of songs right before opening um, the Gospel of John together. Um, opening our eyes that we can see Jesus. Uh, last week, Pastor Ben uh, started the next part of our series with the title, Come and See. Uh, there's this invitation now. Uh, we're, we're at a transition uh, point uh, during Advent. We focused on this downward arrow, this God coming down to dwell with us, and now we're being invited to come and see what Jesus does in his ministry. So we're now on a different angle. We see there's a different color. There's different banners behind me. There's an arrow pointing. It's directing us somewhere. We're seeing Jesus on the ground doing his ministry, and we're having to have our eyes open to see what is John pointing us towards. Now, in our passage... Uh, we're going to come across a, a verse that has some key theme words that have already come up, and I just want to look at it before reading the passage because it provides a lens through which we can see the rest of it. In John chapter 2, verse 11, it's, he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. Uh, these are important words to pick up. Uh, John uses seven different signs. The, the section that we're in from John chapter 2 to 13 is marked by these seven signs. And these signs do something very specific. Um, he could have called these miracles. They're miraculous things that Jesus does. But instead, he calls them signs because the signs do something. I have some images to help us kind of think of these words. These signs act like a sign. When, when you see a sign, we've used this image already in the prologue, it points towards something. We don't look at a viewpoint sign to see how beautiful the viewpoint sign is, but we have our eyes open for the real thing. When we see signs show up, in John, we see that it points towards something and we see that it reveals his glory, this luminous essence of who God is. It points towards Jesus being God in some way. And we see the ultimate result of these signs, the first of which we're going to look at this morning, is belief. And I have a couple of different images for belief, but for today, I'll just have a triangle there. Um, the triangle to represent the Trinity. Um, belief in John isn't just believing that Jesus is good or that Jesus is powerful, that he's able to do these things. To believe points towards Jesus' relationship with the Father, that him and the Father are one, that Jesus is part of the Trinity. That's what this belief is going to point us towards. So as we look at this passage, as we read through it, let's read through it with this lens. How is this sign pointing towards the glory of God. With that, let's also uh, come before God in prayer. Lord, may we come and see. 
may we see how water turning into wine is a sign that leads to belief in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open up to John chapter 2. We're going to be reading the first 12 verses. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, where they stayed for a few days. The word of the Lord. I was once accidentally part of a Middle Eastern wedding celebration. I, to, to back up a little bit, I was taking a class in, in Israel that had a lot of field trips that were quite interesting. They took us through different places in Israel and Jordan, and when it was trips that went us further, took us further away, we would have to stay overnight. And each day would be filled with learning. We would have 12 hours plus of going to these different locations, going on our hikes in the hot weather, trying to take notes, knowing that we were going to be examined on everything, and we would get back just exhausted. And I remember when we were traveling in Jordan this one time, the professor noted that we were in a place where there wasn't really any tourism which means that there weren't any hotels nearby because there was this value of hospitality that still lived in that land. If you needed to go and travel somewhere, it was just expected that you could just show up in the town and you could find a place to stay with the locals who were there because hospitality was just so important. But he did make the note that there was a community center there that had a few rooms to stay that they had used in the past, so we were going to use that. So we got there and exhausted, 
We started unpacking our things when we heard the unmistakable sound of dance music echoing down our halls. Uh, several of the classmates were lucky enough to be in a different wing, a different floor, and didn't have quite the same effect. I was just a few doors down from this uh, main banquet hall, and it was a little too loud not to go and check it out. Like, maybe we could close the doors, maybe we could dampen the sound a little bit. When we peered in to see what was going on, we suddenly just got whisked in as honored guests. They, they found out that we were travelers just stopping by, and they insisted that we stuck around. We were right away introduced to the parents, of course. We needed to know who the bride and groom were. Uh, we even got to meet the mayor of the town. Apparently, that was also very important. We were told it would be a dishonor to refuse the invitation towards the celebration. This is classic Middle Eastern hospitality. Once we showed up, we had to be part of it. There was no second guessing. This was ingrained into their cultural system. Celebrations were made for hospitality, especially weddings. And I think this is the context we need to understand when we look at what is happening here in the story in Cana. The wedding here is this first time for a couple to show hospitality, and they do this by showing, um, by having and hosting this abundant party. Uh, providing a feast with food and wine was ingrained in this culture, and most often uh, the couple wouldn't have enough finances to be able to do this. This was a long, okay, seven-day kind of feast, not just the one-day sort of thing that we have here. So they relied on the community, their, their social connections, their friendships, to make sure that there was enough. Having food and wine was essential to starting off the marriage right. It showed the support of the community, it showed their social connections, it showed the stability of the couple, and most importantly, it showed this hospitality, this core feature in their culture. Mary's words to Jesus then, they have no more wine, speak of a transgression against one of the central tenets of their culture. It speaks more than just running out of something. It speaks of perhaps the, the brokenness and social connections that were there. This would have been a source of immense shame for the couple. I'm told this rule was so ingrained in the culture that if you went to a wedding and you didn't get the, the food and the wine, that you could actually sue them. They were legally in a little bit of trouble here. They had a potential lawsuit on their hands, and as this couple begins their life together, they are at a moment that instead of celebration is a point where they could have immense shame here. Instead of plenty in the story, we have a sense of not enoughness right in the beginning. These people were not able to provide what they were supposed to. Just a second. All right, hopefully that's better. Now, to add one more layer in the story, we have in the Old Testament a prophetic association between Israel's disobedience, Israel's current state of living without God's presence, and being out of wine. According to Genesis chapter 1, Oh, we're familiar with this idea that humanity was created 
and they were given this blessing to be fruitful and to multiply, to see the world become uh, in its fullness and its abundance with God's presence guiding them. In Isaiah 24, we see a reversal of that. We see um, in verse 4 and 5, the state of the earth has dried up and it has withered. And this is a direct result of humanity defiling the earth rather than bringing it into flourishing. They have abandoned God's good rule, and the result ultimately is found in verse 7 here with the new wine drying up and the vine withering. There's dryness and emptiness here. It makes us think back to this wedding story here. The wedding couple mirrors the whole state of Israel, waiting for someone to show up and rescue them. They're, they're in this hopeless place. Nothing short of a miracle will save them. John adds another detail in the story as he goes along that, that makes us think of Israel and its need for God. He says that there are six jars, six stone jars there, and they're used for ceremonial washing. It's often pointed out here that John uses the number six because it shows that it's, something's incomplete here. Uh, the number of perfection, the number of wholeness is seven, and here there's a number that comes short of that. And by pointing this out, John is saying that there's something incomplete about this ceremonial washing. There's something incomplete about the law that they're following. There's a not-enoughness associated with these jars. These jars might be able to help the people be clean for a moment, but it's fleeting. They might be able to get you part of the way, but it doesn't give this full renewal that they needed. It's unable to ultimately fulfill what they are longing for, what they're craving for, this life that they need. So embedded into this story is a story, yes, about wine running out, but it's also a nod towards Israel as representatives of humanity that the wine has dried up and they are unable to provide life for their own. They're caught up in rituals that don't do the trick and they need something more. That's where we start here. Now, in the midst of this dire situation, what can they do but turn to Jesus? That is what Mary does here. And notice that Jesus, in response, doesn't refer to her as mother, uh, but as woman. And we see that as Jesus begins his ministry here, blood ties are not the central identity marker. What is central to Jesus is this relationship to God. He doesn't call Mary, his mother, but in John, Jesus and his relationship to the Father shows up over a hundred times. Mary here is brought to the level that we all share. She is brought to the level of disciple. And Mary, as disciples, gives some really great advice. In talking to the servers, she says, do whatever he tells you. Jesus points out that his, his hour, his time has not yet come. The, the time of the glorification on the cross is not there yet. 
but she still holds out hope that Jesus will provide. And the words that she gives is just plain old good advice. We are to be a people who do whatever Jesus tells us to do. And, and we don't need to know the result of it either. Uh, the, the servers, I'm sure, were perhaps a little confused at why Jesus was telling them to fill these jars with water, uh, why that water was being served to the master of the ceremony. That the problem wasn't not enough water, but not enough wine. And often, I think we share in that. Uh, we don't get to see the whole part of the story when Jesus tells us to do something. Following Jesus can feel like being the servers sometimes. We live in a world where following Jesus might not always make a lot of sense. And it might not be as trivial as filling some pots with water. It, it might actually involve trusting God through some difficult trials. It might involve forgiving someone whom you don't want to forgive. It might involve going outside of what you're comfortable with, opening yourself to a new group of people. It might involve extra work, opening your home to hospitality. Whatever the case is, we're not always given the answer to why we have to do these things. We don't have the magic ball that tells us the results that will happen when we do it. We simply heed the advice of Mary, do whatever he tells us, trusting that the one who brings abundance and the one who brings life is faithful. And notice, too, in here that it involves listening. And I think that's an important point for us, that we have to listen not just to our wants and to our needs, but we need to listen to what Jesus says. Because I, I think sometimes our internal voices can displace Jesus' voice. We don't want to forgive. It will make us uncomfortable. We don't want to get to know new people. We feel safe where we are. The temptation can be to, to plug our ears to what Jesus is saying to us so we don't have to do anything. And the question remains then, are we receptive? Are we listening? Are we listening to what Jesus may be telling us to do? Anybody setting out to follow Jesus will have something that they share with the servers here. Sometimes we hear God calling us to places we don't always understand. We might ask, why this or why now? Mary's advice to them serves as good advice to do whatever he tells you. And I like the, um, the little details that are thrown in here of what happens when they do follow him. Sometimes when God is at work, it can be done in such an ordinary way that we don't actually see it. It says here, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't even realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, 
Now, I think sometimes when we think of miraculous signs, we would expect that Jesus would gather everybody around. He's thinking, okay, now is the time to do this sign, and it's going to have a lot of flair and a lot of flash to it, that like fireworks are going to go off, and he's like, all right, the water is now wine, and like everyone is super impressed. But that's not how the story goes. No attention is drawn to this. The people that are tasting the wine don't even know what is happening here. Jesus' first miracle goes on unannounced, unnoticed. It is in a tiny village that is unknown except for its mentionings here and later in John. The miracle is so ordinary that everybody just keeps on going about their own business. As we go about our daily business, as we go out our daily lives, I wonder what sort of ordinary miracles are happening around us. How many masters of the banquet are out there who are tasting the miraculous signs of God's goodness yet don't see its source, who don't see the miracle that's within? I think we are called to kind of share this with the servers at some times. We are just following as Jesus leads knowing that Jesus can work a miracle where we least expect it. It doesn't have to take our seeing it, an hour noticing it, for it to be any more spectacular. And this is the nature of signs in John. Signs don't focus on what we might want to focus on. We want maybe to see that the healing take place. We want to examine it under the microscope. We want to see its impressiveness, the supernatural quality of this. We often want to see how Jesus can do the impossible, and it's on that basis that we can understand that he is divine. But John doesn't describe the process. He doesn't get into any of those things because the sign actually is doing something different in John's story here. We are asking of ourselves here, what does this sign reveal? What does the sign point us towards? We're not focused on the the wine itself, but we are looking at how this directs us to God's glory. Now, on Christmas Day, we focused on glory in terms of this brightness and how it shows up in the Old Testament, and I want to add to that just a layer that... Glory also reveals something of God's essence, of God's character. What makes God God is seen in his glory. And glory here shows up in God caring for the dignity of the person in need. Remember the host. Remember the dire situation that they are in with the announcement that there is no more wine. When the master of the banquet tastes it, we discover that God's presence is one that restores dignity, and more than that, it puts the hosts in a better place than, when they were, than where they were standing before. Jesus not only saved their honor, but he enhances it. He doesn't just save them by providing more regular wine, more of the same stuff that they were drinking, He provides them with the finest wine yet. And it's not just a few bottles here. It's quite a bit. Uh, We are told that there are six jars, each of them 
holding 20 to 30 gallons. Oh, that's the gallons. And if, even if we were to take an average, let's say there's 25 gallons per jar, we times that by six, I think we're at about 150 gallons of wine. Um, and it's like half a liquor store. Like, this is... <laughs> If, if you take the fact that it's 750 milliliters per bottle of wine, it equates to about 733 bottles of wine. There's a lot there for this party. Their emptiness is met with abundance in at least two ways. There is abundance in quality and there is abundance in quantity. Their source of shame is reversed through the miracle of Jesus taking this debt. And Jesus takes on the responsibility of the host who is unable to pay his way out of the problem. As we enter into the story, this married couple begin inevitably facing the shame that the, of the fact that they're unable to provide, they're unable to be good hosts. And as we leave the story, these people are rock stars. The people are thrilled. They saved the best wine for last. There's enough left over for the party to continue for ages. It's a story of emptiness to abundance, from shame to honor. We see here, this is what glory looks like. This is what God does for his people. This story has been looked at for a long time as an image of salvation. We live as people with our own emptiness, our own sources of shame. We've all done things we're not proud of. We've maybe said some things we wish we hadn't. We've looked the, way, uh, the other way when we should have intervened. We all have brokenness in our relationship with God, our attempts to get his life-giving goodness on our own power. Whatever efforts we bring to it, inevitably leaves us empty, grasping for what we cannot get on our own, and Jesus comes to us in our emptiness. In our shame, he restores our relationship, he restores that dignity, and he leaves us off better than where we came to him. He doesn't just cleanse us, but he renews us, knowing that there is no way that we could grasp hold of that life. He comes down to us. Jesus fulfills what we cannot. To, to bring this to some of the famous words from the Apostle Paul, we get much of the same thing um, in Philippians chapter 3 where after listing several different kind of accolades, some different things that he could be really proud of, he says, I consider these things to be garbage. It's, it's just more empty things being piled on top of itself that I may gain for Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It's not the, the ceremonial washing. It's not that sort of thing that brings him this sense of glory, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Notice the, the works that Paul does are considered garbage because the righteousness that he receives is from God. 
It's God who brings us into right standing. You find Paul repeating this in all sorts of different places. If you want to find another good example, there's one in Romans chapter 3. We are far better off because we don't have our own righteousness to boast of. We have the righteousness of Christ, a gift that we didn't deserve any more than the people getting married on that day in Cana. It is given as a gift. Through Christ's work in us, we are taken with our sin, with our varied places of shame, our emptiness, and Jesus brings transformation and he brings abundance. Disciples catch a glimpse of this and they don't simply see a miracle, they see a sign. They see someone doing the things that God promises to do for his people, to restore them, to bring them to a better standing than they could possibly do on their own. They see the glory of God revealed. And second, there's, there's more to it here. Remember, uh, when we opened this, we, we also made this connection between this passage in Isaiah 24 uh, of this drying up, the withering of the vine. Well, Isaiah chapter 25 builds on this image. While humanity brings destruction on the earth, God's return is associated with plenty. We find that God is the one who is a host of this great feast. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich a feast of rich food for all the people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. By preparing a feast here of the finest of wine, Jesus is saying, I'm doing the sorts of things that the Lord Almighty is meant to do. Jesus is saying the dryness, the emptiness is gone, and now you can experience the feast that you have been waiting for. From me, you will find the finest of wines. That moment you've been waiting for is here, that God is here with you. And there's other places where this same sort of theme shows up in the prophets. Just one more example from Amos chapter 9. Alongside God's presence, we find that the new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. We have wine deeply connected with this vision of salvation for Israel. As Amos puts it, new wine will drip from mountains and flow from hills. With God there, there's also abundance. They are waiting for this day where God shows up and Jesus is saying, this is happening now. Something about the expectation of God being with his people and restoring them to fullness is happening right now through him. Just look at the abundance. 730 bottles of wine, the mountains are practically dripping with this stuff. The feast is being set, and it is of the finest of quality. This is new creation. This is joy. This is celebration. This is the party. In one word, it is abundance. 
a few weeks ago, I noted that John makes a whole lot more sense when we read it in terms of his audience, that there are a bunch of uh, Jewish people who are thinking, ah, this following Jesus is pretty tough. We should just go back to these old weathered ways of our Jewish traditions. We should go back to the temple. We should go back to the ceremonial cleansing, the different laws that we should follow. And John is saying, if you go back, look what you are turning your backs to. From the place of mere ceremonial cleansing, Jesus exposes the poverty, the inability to bring people into wholeness. And he signifies that purification needs more than just removing the uncleanliness. We need more than just a ritual to remind ourselves of our need of God. We need more than just the law to bring ourselves into right relationship with God. What we need is Jesus. God coming to be with us and the abundance that he provides. Why go back to the water and the ceremonial cleansing? Why go anywhere else when the abundance is sitting there right with us? Now, our passage says that the disciples saw this as a sign, how it pointed towards glory and how it ultimately pointed towards belief, belief that Jesus is one with God. This is the ultimate purpose of the signs in John. You'll find this over and over again. When you see the word sign, you'll find the words believe following close by. They see this as a sign of how Jesus overcomes the inadequacies of the religious rites, how he does more than just remove uncleanliness, but brings the fullness of joy. He does more than just provide wine, but the finest stuff, and he does it in abundance. Now, in order to do this, it takes an extraordinary act. This is an act that can be rightfully seen as an act of new creation. Quite literally, Jesus had to create something in here from nothing. It can actually be argued that this is amongst the most unique of Jesus' miracles. There was once uh, an atheist who was studying Jesus' life and his ministries, and one of the things he got fascinated with, he wrote this real big book on it, uh, that um, a lot of people uh, kind of focused in on, that it cataloged the different miracles that he did and which ones were most likely, which ones were the most believable and kind of easy to understand, which ones are the most unbelievable, which ones are the, the hardest ones to have done. And this person looked at what Jesus was doing and he figured the transformation of water to wine was the most remarkable of things. Because in all the other miracles, all Jesus was really doing was improving what was already there. He was taking what was there and just fixing it. Uh, he looks at this in terms of the exorcisms. He sees this as dealing with the internal mechanisms of the persons, that pe Jesus was really just a good psychologist who got hyped up over time. Or in healing the person, he says that you're just speeding up the natural process. Everything needed for healing was already there. Maybe you're manipulating what's there. Jesus is just a good physician. Even in raising the dead, the, the materials of the person, everything is there. He's just resuscitating this person. 
Jesus was a person that had some impressive tricks up his sleeve, but the biggest and most unbelievable thing that he did was turn water into wine because it goes outside of the natural properties of things. The ingredients were not there for the wine. There's no amount of time of water sitting in a jar where this would suddenly become, through the natural process of things, um, wine. Something different, something new is happening here. Water is there, but the time it reaches the mouth of the other person is a new substance. New creation has happened. And the wonder of it is this, that Jesus doesn't need the ingredients to do what he wants. He creates from nothing. He creates things and does things that only God does here. And I'll finish with this note because I think it gives us a sense of hope. Whatever kind of hopeless situation that we come across, we can remember that the ingredients don't need to be there for Jesus to do something. We are called to be a people who listen. And we are out, or we are without excuse to listen to Mary's advice to listen and act on whatever Jesus tells us to do. If Jesus wants to do a new work in you, You don't have to conjure up the strength. It is not up to your willpower to get the job done. We remember that the ingredients don't need to be there for Jesus to do his work. None of us are beyond Jesus working through us. If Jesus wants to do something through living hope, we can have full confidence that he can and he will on the sole basis that Jesus is behind it. It is not on the basis of us living perfectly, doing the right things, saying the right things. Jesus can work to us. He can bring abundance and new creation life regardless of the materials, regardless of the circumstance. So let's keep our eyes and ears open for what Jesus is speaking. And when he speaks, let us follow, knowing that the one who creates something from nothing can surely bring it into completion. Let's pray. Creator God, the one who comes to our not-enoughness and turns it into abundance, work in us here. Take us with our weakness, our flaws, our tempers, our impatience, the habits we wish we didn't have, and renew us. We know we need more than just cleansing. We need a whole renewal from you. We thank you that it is not up to us to do this, but it is through your work, through your life, that we may have life. As we continue in your word, may we be listeners to what you have to say. Help us to take Mary's advice and do whatever you tell us to do, even when we can't see how it will end or what the result might be. We trust that through you, there is true abundance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.